Welcome to The Black Athlete, a podcast where we put the past into the present of black sports. I'm Lewis Moore. I'm Derek White. We're sports historians here to give you the historical context for contemporary black athletes. And welcome back to The Black Athlete. I'm Lewis Moore, author of I Fight for a Living and We Will Win the Day. And you could check out my Audible on Amazon. It's literally called The African-American Athlete. And you can check me out at proflumore.com. I'm Derek White. I'm the author of The Challenge of Blackness, as well as Blood, Sweat, and Tears, Jake Gaither, Florida A&M, and the History of Black College Football. Welcome back, Lou. Oh, man, thanks. This is our, our shortest break ever, man. Uh, good to be back. So we just did the NBA boycott slash strike a couple days ago, and now we're back with some John Thompson. And in the meantime, I finished putting everything up line online for my class. So I feel good. Congratulations on that. That's thank good. You. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Thank uh, you. We, uh, I just want to let our listeners know, especially our listeners in Canada, that we're large like Drake after spending yes. uh, CBC morning news last week. Uh, me and Lou both on there. I think I was on the can- Canadian television like three times in two days. Uh, thank you to the Raptors for winning a NBA title, giving us uh, new new platforms uh, for which we could talk about uh, protests and race and sports. And we also want to say really quickly before we start, uh, rest in peace to Chadwick Bozeman. Um, uh, I I I have two sons, and Black Panther is an important component to their understanding we took them on the crew disney cruise a few years ago uh right the same weekend that black panther came out and it was um it was really one of the best things i'd ever done you know as a as a father uh you know for my kids i was so proud that they could see this moment with this this black superhero um and you know it is a, a tragic loss at 43 Additionally, he played every, I think, historical black figure, like in, everyone, in, every last one <laughs> of them, one right? Of them. <laughs> right. Uh, Jackie Robinson, James Brown, Thurgood Marshall. And so the fact that he passed away, at least it was announced on Jackie Robinson Day, uh, I think is, uh, is appropriate in the sense that he really did embody some of the, uh, the kind of power that Jackie uh, played with and lived with. Uh, and so we rest in peace to the tremendous loss to the black, the black art, the black world uh, of, of artists and activists and, and superheroes. Uh, and so I'm super happy. I'm not super happy. I'm super sad about this, but I'm super excited that we can honor his legacy um, in this moment and this weekend. Um, Lou, did you take your kids to see Black Panther? Oh yeah, man. You know it. You know, we did. And, uh, I went twice. I went twice. I went, I went with my, my boy. Uh, so he's, he's nine now. So we're big Marvels. We see uh, all those movies. Um, and then I took my wife, um, to the movies too. So I saw it twice. And then when it came out body, and then I still, even though I own it, I watch it on one of the, one of the streaming things that I have, it's, it's streaming everywhere. <laughs> and then, and then I watched the other day. So so yeah, no, I love I love the movie. Um, you know me, I'm a, I'm a sports guy, so I loved all, all the the fighting scenes and stuff like that. You know, to uh, spoiler alert, if you haven't seen it, to 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 get to the throne. And then I like 42, right? Like it was 
Um, you know, it wasn't my only critique of that movie was it wasn't Jackie, right? Jackie had that high pitched voice, right? But I think, you know, looking back on it, he was the perfect actor, right? Because he he could act, right? He could, mm-hmm. he, I loved him um, as an actor. I just saw that 21 movie, that cop movie or whatever, that was actually pretty interesting, right? He made that movie. Uh, so it's sad. And, and I told my son that night and, and uh, I tweeted about this. The, the hardest part was like, he asked about me, right? Cause we're similar age. I was like, dang man. Uh, mm-hmm. Cause I was, you know, he's worried about my demise and I'm like, dude, I'm only 42. But then you realize, uh, you know, uh, he was 43. Right. right. Um, and I try to explain, he said, why did he die? I try to explain as I like, look, that's why, you know, daddy gets his checkup every year. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so everybody out there, get your checkup man. get your, get your checkup. That's all that's I got. Real. That's good advice. It's been a, it's been a crazy week with, uh, since we last did NBA and protest and, and, and Jacob Blake, and we've had that, the NBA went out on strike, which we discussed in our last episode. Uh, and this morning we found out that the, the, the coaching legend, John Thompson passed away at age 78. Uh, and to have this discussion, we needed to bring in, uh, you know, another person, another scholar of, of tremendous uh, esteem um, and a colleague and friend of ours, Frank Garitti uh, of the universe at Columbia university. And let me just say before Frank, before we get in, let me give his background. Frank is the author of forging diaspora, Afro Cubans and African-Americans in the world of empire and, and Jim Crow, which won the Elsa Govea prize from the association of Caribbean historians and the Wesley Logan book prize by the AHA, the American Historical Association. Wow. Yes, this is big. This oh, is big. This is big for big. us. We're getting, we're getting this big. This is our biggest guest. As in, wow. we get stars. We're getting wow. stars. Wow. Yeah, right. Uh, he is author. He is also author of a forthcoming book, which is speaks directly to this, this topic as well. Uh, the Sports Revolution, How Texas Changed the Culture of American Athletics, coming out in February of 2021. We welcome Frank to the show, to the Black Athlete Podcast. Welcome, Frank. It is a pleasure, a delight to be on with you both. I appreciate that very generous uh, introduction. To be honest, I am following in your footsteps and the footsteps of so many um, amazing sports uh, study scholars and uh, historians that are out there. But I'm just really delighted to talk to you today. So we we got to, you know, John Thompson, we were as we were talking in pre pre-production today that John Thompson is by far the uh, 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 the the best and probably largest and most important black coach in American history. And 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 so, Frank, as a as a New Yorker, as well as a Syracuse alum, alum of the Big East, can you just start with like, what are your memories of of? of your first memories of, of, of John Thompson. So, uh, you know, I had the, um, I now see it, the unique experience of growing up in New York city in the seventies and eighties and in the eighties in particular during the, the heyday of big East basketball, right? Big, the big East was the conference that was formed in 1979, uh, uh, led by Dave Gavitt, uh, that uh, pulled together uh, schools from uh, the Northeast to form a, a new college basketball conference. And Georgetown was one of the frontline programs, probably the dominant program uh, of that conference. And so my memories of Georgetown was 
was watching uh, watching that 81-82 Georgetown team with the freshman legend center uh, Patrick Ewing uh, and Eric Sleepy Floyd uh, making it all the way to the 1982 Final Four in which they lost memorably uh, to Michael Jordan, uh, James Worthy, and the North Carolina Tar Heels. But my memories really are are watching Big East basketball games uh, every seem like every week with my with my father and my younger brother. Um, you know, watching the face off against Syracuse, watching the face off against Luke Karnasek and St. John's uh, Red Storm, as they're called now. They used to be called the Red Men. Um, you know, and seeing them ascend to the final year, final four, the uh, the NCAA men's basketball finals, almost every single year in the eighties. Big East teams were constantly there. And then, of course, uh, growing up in the Bronx, uh, uh, wishing but never having a Georgetown uh, starter jacket, right? We're talking about sport. <laughs> uh, uh, I had a starter jacket, but it was a New York Knicks star- starter jacket. And I'm 99% sure it's because it was cheaper than the, um, than the Georgetown starter jacket, which was a prized possession in urban America, or at least in the Bronx in the 1980s, uh, because Georgetown had a massive following, you know, outside of Washington, D.C., particularly with black folks and black youth. So, you know, here I am, you know, in in the 1980s Bronx, where hip hop culture is exploding, where playground basketball is, a, is an institution. And uh, so my memories of, of, of Georgetown at that time was, you know, being the cool kid or not being the cool kid wearing a Georgetown starter jacket, right? And so, you know, so it just many of, even though I wasn't a fan of Georgetown, I actually turned out to be a Syracuse fan in retrospect. And even then I understood that they were a preeminent basketball program and a cultural force uh, that, that, uh, that everyone had to reckon with. Uh, whether, you, whether you liked Georgetown or not, you respected them because they were really the, the, the showcase program of the Big East at that time. Yeah, yeah. Lou, what, what do you remember most, like your first kind of real early memories of, of Georgetown? That was a black school. Uh, mm-hmm. just kidding. Uh, <laughs> so did I. <laughs> right? I, you know, I'm from this small, small California, and then when you see them, right? I'm a big basketball junkie growing up, and and you see this, it's just a different team, right? With a different vibe, and you wanted to be them. I have an older brother, so we used to have to watch, you know, watch the Georgetown games, and he had like his knockoff Georgetown jersey, he had a Georgetown hat, he had everything Georgetown, right? Um, and so that's what I remember, just the just the nostalgia and and Michael Graham, right? Who I still have my my hair is intentionally like his, right? That's how I like to tell people. <laughs> minus 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 the attitude. Um, um, and we we can get into Michael Graham and John Thompson later, and 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 his test scores. And but I'll, I'll say this: that says something about John Thompson, who he is, and I, and we'll touch on that later. But yeah, and and like. Like Frank, the the starter kit, um, the starter jacket. Now I have a nice Texas Longhorn starter jacket that I that I still have, but but never the Georgetown could you know you couldn't afford it, and and if anyone knows me, I'm I'm heavy into nostalgia. So there's going to be one day either I'm going to get that Georgetown starter jacket, or I'm going to get the Charlotte Hornet starter jacket, right? Like, and it's going to be those those nice those nice colors, uh, that teal uh started uh charlotte hornets jacket but no that's on my list that's on my wish list like every time i go to like an antique store or something like maybe someone did something bad just just gave their starter jacket away or trying to sell it so um no but 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 it's just that idea that they're this kind of all black team like very very in your face and, and i loved it right um and as frank said that was like that was hip hop, right? And it was like Georgetown comes on the rise as, as hip hop comes on the rise, and I and I think the two mesh mesh very well. Even though DC is not a hip hop city, right? Um, at that time, um, but shout out shout out to EU. But yeah, what about you, Derek? 
Um, for me, it's, it's, you know, I grew up in Lexington, Kentucky, so I grew up in basketball country, like 101. And um, Georgetown was, you know, that was the enemy. But, you know, you grew up black in a town where Adolph Rupp's name is on the on the on the arena for the University <laughs> of Kentucky. You're always finding uh, new outlets. And so when Georgetown, th- there are two stories here, right? Georgetown in 1984, when they win a national title, they d- they play Kentucky in the final four. And so the local news is in Seattle and they're like covering this story. And, you know, Kentucky has the Twin Towers and they've got Sam Bowie and Mel Turpin, both NBA guys. I think Kenny Skywalker's on that yeah. team as well. Kenny yes. Skywalker's on yes. that team. Uh, yes. And, you know, they're telling everybody that they got more talent than this Georgetown team. And Georgetown uh, comes out and holds them to like 12% or 20% shooting in the second half and they win by 25 uh, and a lot of local folks, because of this complex, black folks, especially were in this, because of this complicated relationship with with UK, were rooting for Georgetown, and uh, and so there was this kind of interesting dynamic that I really picked up on as a kid. And then the very next year, Georgetown in the most famous game in college basketball, in which they lose to Villanova. Um, is that that final game is played in Rupp Arena. And I wanted to skip school and have my parents take me down to the practices, which they did not do. Um, shout out to my parents who are doing the right thing. But I wanted to go to the practices because I wanted to see this team. And like Lou, my parent, my mom went to Kentucky State. And I just, there's no way I can imagine basketball in Lexington and the way that it was composed with white coaches and white players and black players, very integrated to watch this Georgetown team and think of it as not as an HBCU. Cause that was the only space I knew where you could have 13 black players and five black coaches and maybe one white assistant coach. And, and that was like what Georgetown looked like in 84 and 85. Uh, and getting back to Frank's point about Big East basketball, this is really where we think about technology. ESPN had that Big Monday where they show Big East basketball every Monday. And that was must-see television that you had to get your homework done uh, and, and be home so that you could watch that 7 o'clock and 9 o'clock game. Uh, and that was that was really a, an important moment. And so you saw John Thompson as this bigger-than-life figure that whites like white sports writers and white communities didn't like at all. He wasn't, you know, he wasn't Dean Smith. He wasn't uh, Bobby Knight, but you recognize him as a strong figure. And you saw that was something that you wanted, that you could admire as a black athlete, uh, you know, coming up and you were like, man, I hope my coaches uh, can be as good and as talented as John Thompson. No question. Yeah. I mean, he, he just, he, he stood up, he was such a prominent you know, in, in an age when, you know, of course, even then you know, there were so few white, I mean, sorry, black prominent coaches. I mean, to have him uh, on TV, excelling seemingly on his own terms with an all black, virtually all black roster, it, you know, I, in, I mean, I knew it as a young person then, but in retrospect, historically speaking, it's incredibly significant and unique, I think, in a lot of ways. I don't, I don't know there are a lot of parallels, certainly in the integration era that that are that along the lines of John John, John Thompson's trajectory as a, as a black coach of, of an of a athletic uh, uh, team at a, at a predominantly white institution. No, no. And, and I think just on that, and, and listeners, we'll be all over the place on, on this one, but, but I want to, I want to, I want to hone in on two things. We'll go, I want to, I want to back up 
because uh, one of the things that Derek said and and then then Frank mentioned it, and I think both we want to both mention the '82 championship game. But John Thompson has this black figure that that white America, how to say, it, was for the most part was scared of. Right? There was uh, like we talked about in prep. John Thompson. We'll talk a little bit or more about this. Went from like Saint John, this idea that cared about these black students, to Big John, this villain. And I have a question for you guys on that '82 game. Do you think? It's significant, right? The way we see Michael Jordan because he beats, he's the guy, him and Dean Smith, they beat John Thompson, this very black team, right? Does this set up how we start to see Michael Jordan um, as this really, how do you put it? Almost a raceless figure, right? He's black. Everyone knows he's black, but no one wants to see him black. But he's the guy who goes in and beats, the, he slays the giant, right? Um, he beats the, the black team with the black head coach. Um, yes, no, maybe so too much right now at, at 10 20. <laughs> um, I actually think there's something to that. Like, I think that, I think, I think it's complicated because Dean Smith was already by 82 um, beloved in black communities, especially black communities in North Carolina for what he had done in desegregating uh, the university of North Carolina. And, and I think that we shouldn't take that for granted. Um, and I think that Dean Smith had done uh, a, a number of really important things going back to, you know, signing Charlie Scott in, in what, 67, I think it was. Um, and and so I think it, but I think the press picked up on that. Right. I think that they could exalt uh, Michael Jordan in a way because he kept for this one moment, this really black team from the title. Uh, with this black head coach. And so I think that there's something that allowed them to exalt Michael Jordan's greatness. This is not to say that Michael Jordan didn't earn that greatness, but the white press kind of um, uh, support of that greatness, I think is probably enhanced in this subconsciousness. Uh, like he he's serving some other interests besides his black interests. I don't know. What do you think, Frank? I, you know, I think that, I think there is something to that, you know, partly because, you know, at that time, you know, Dean Smith still had not won an NCAA championship. You know, the, the Tar Heels had been in the Final Four, you know, regularly, but they always lost. So he was already, you know, kind of the sympathetic figure going into that to, to that uh, that tournament, the Final Four in the, in the Louisiana Super, Superdome. Uh, and, and so it certainly is the moment that in the Jordan narrative, right, that marks it marks his ascendance, right, as a big time player, as a clutch player when he hits the shot to put them up. But of course, there's so many other storylines in that game, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I mean, there's so many other transcendent performances in that game. James Worthy is a real star of the Tar, Tar Heels on that team that year, right? I mean, yeah, he's a junior. Yeah. Uh, you know, Sam Perkins is an up and coming player. Uh, Jimmy Black is the point guard. Uh, you know, they got a bunch of talented players who excel. And uh, and so you know the, the the narrative of that, as I recall it, as I've read about it, of that of that Final Four is about is Dean Smith going to finally win a championship, right? But mm-hmm. it certainly didn't it didn't hurt that they beat these outsiders, right? And there's no question that the Warriors were seen as outsiders, uh, you know, not just because of Thompson, because Patrick Ewing was an extraordinary force as a freshman. I mean, I have I have seen that game many times on YouTube, and to see the block shots and the I think he was called for goaltending five times in that in that game. <laughs> I mean, he was this intimidating force that you know that signaled to you know the college basketball authorities that this program is not here to you know to just uh, you know to to roll over for Dean Smith and the Tar Heels. And then of course the way they win the game in the end is when Fred Brown throws the ball away to James Worthy, mm-hmm. uh, Fred Brown from mm-hmm. South Bronx Stevenson High School. Uh, you know that's another storyline. So. 
but Lou, I think your I think your point is spot on insofar as the ways in which you know the program was perceived and and the and probably the, the big sigh of relief that the college basketball authorities had that, that Dean Smith finally won because he had carved out a space for himself as a, a legendary coach, coach as, as Derek says, rightfully so at that point. But what an incredible game! And and just in that game, you bring up James Worthy and sleep, and then we have Sleepy Floyd, Sleepy Floyd. same town in mm-hmm. North Carolina, different yep. high schools, yep. and and I think just how. Floyd getting to Georgetown is just a whole nother story. Like this is hopefully that the new John Thompson biography gets into it. Cause if you're a nostalgia person, like Floyd's a big name, right? In the eighties, he's not a huge name, but it's a cool little story. But, and cause you know, John Thompson recruits generally from the city. And then somehow he discovered uh, Floyd while watching an, another player from his high school who wound up, I believe, uh, going to Mer- Maryland or Maryland and then, uh, uh, getting hurt, uh, a <laughs> lot. Um, but he wound up on Floyd, you know, Floyd, um, and Floyd was, was grades and stuff like too, that too. But let's, can we get, get in some history? Cause I think the, the most interesting part about John Thompson is actually that, and what we've talked about that day, he had an all black team at Georgetown. Right. And so part of the legacy of John Thompson is actually being able to tell that story. Why Georgetown? And and so let's just do that now. And I'll just tell the listeners. So why Georgetown? So so John Thompson, as you guys listeners should know, he's a DC guy, Catholic school kid, winds up going to Providence place, plays for the Celtics for a bit. You know, they they had a, a pretty good big man. Uh so it was clear, it was clear his his career was gonna be short anyway. Uh goes back home and then eventually gets into gets into high school coaching, uh, coaches at John, John or St. Anthony, right. And turns that program around. I believe he goes 128 and 20, um, in his, in his career there. And, and since it's John Thompson, there's controversy and the controversy is Derek. Uh, he and uh, DeMatha's head coach, Morgan Wooten, uh, fell out. Uh, because Morgan Wooten uh, was would not regularly play his team, right? I mean, Morgan Wooten was the the preeminent uh, program in the East Coast, right? Especially in the D.C. area. And so backtracking a little bit, when Lou Alcindor was at Power Memorial in New York and they were the most dominant team, uh, one year they come down to Washington, D.C. Uh, and play, I believe they played at Cole Fieldhouse, that they played DeMatha and DeMatha broke this, well, I don't know, it was like 60-game winning streak that Power Memorial had uh, in defeating uh, Lou, Al- Lou Alcindor, now Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. And so this really set uh, Morgan Wooten and DeMatha on this different path as a basketball powerhouse. Uh, and beginning in the, in the mid-60s, you know, in the mid-60s, DeMatha, which was a, is a private school uh, in Hyattsville, Maryland, slowly begins to recruit more athletes uh, and black athletes from the city. And this puts them in in competition with the public schools in Washington, D.C., most notably Dunbar, but also a handful of private schools that had already been catering towards black communities uh, since the 1950s. And so this is this 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 textbook sense of how do these private schools in Washington, D.C. in particular begin to to. become national powers on the backs by recruiting black athletes into their schools uh, by giving them scholarships. They don't pay tuition. And this is something we see up and down the East Coast. So so um, Frank is from New York, and I'm thinking about all the schools um, like Fordham Prep, right, where Jamal Mashburn went, right? Like it is not unusual for athletes 
uh, in New York City to not play for Lincoln in the in Brooklyn, for example, right? But to play for a handful of private schools in the area. I'm thinking of uh, what's the one that I'm, uh, St. Anthony's? Is that right? Is that what I'm thinking of uh, uh, in Queens? Which one is that in Queens? Uh, Archbishop Malloy. Archbishop right. Malloy, right? Who's, and, who's there? Kenny Smith. Who comes out of Archbishop Malloy? I should know this. I'm blanking. Um, right. Oh, New Yorkers. There you go. I'm out. from the Bronx, though, so it's different. <laughs> but we have, we, have the similar, we have the similar dynamic there, where there's no question that the, the Catholic schools uh, had dibs uh, on on many of the, the, the you know, the 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 talented uh, young basketball players coming up in the city. There's no question. Who comes out of Archbishop Malloy? It's got to give me a minute. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you in a minute. You're going to come back to it. Let us know when you come back when to I, it. Yes, yes. But that's <laughs> definitely one of those schools. No question. And so what you get is this this situation where you have these tensions play out, and and what it does is that as John Thompson is establishing himself as a as a high school basketball power, uh, you know the the team that's kind of standing from him, kind of ascending to the the top spot is Dematha, and those two teams refuse to pay by Morgan Wooten refusing to play them, they don't give they don't allow John Thompson and his team to really move to the to the forefront of the top of the kind of heap. Uh, and so he's upset about it, right? And he he holds grudges about Dematha, and, and this carries forward for decades in various kinds of interesting ways. But Blue, so how does how does John Thompson get the Georgetown job, though, as from a high school right. coach to Georgetown? So so John Thompson dominates, right? Because he does the same thing as the Dematha's doing. He's recruiting black young black kids to his 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 program and he's also emphasizing education this is important so georgetown is in the middle of dc and then in 1968 there is a rebellion right i believe it's the post martin luther king rebellion and georgetown realizes it's a essentially all white right catholic school and has done nothing uh in the city and so they start making outreach and one of them is how do we get black students to go to this school. And and part of that is, you know, they have very high standards. And it's not to say that black students can't make their high standards, but in the past, if they didn't make the high standards, they wouldn't try to let them in. And so there's there's that 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 moment where and we see this now with 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 schools is how do we get these schools in? If they don't make it, we'll still help them out, right? There's summer schools. Oh, this is a this is a med school. We're gonna help them out with, you know, taking certain classes, math classes, chem classes to make sure they're ready to start, right? So they start that investment. And then early on it's still not enough. And when that job comes available, students, uh black student leaders at that school said one way you'll be able to change the perception of Georgetown and and perhaps get more black students is to hire a black basketball coach, right? And so at that moment, it would have been between John Thompson and George Ravlin, who I believe was assistant at that time in Maryland. Thompson, the local guy, gets the job. And and I want to say the rest is history. It starts out pretty slow, but look, he's he's at a place who where where I read had made three tournaments before that, and one of them was during World War II when all the good players were gone. Um, I think their best showing was getting beat by Pete Maravich and them and LSU. So it's not a it's not a basketball school. And all of a sudden, by the late seventies, early eighties, he has, he turns it into a basketball powerhouse. And the, and the way he does this is he, he gets the guys that on the one hand, nobody wants, but he gets the guys that nobody believes in. Right. So he takes people who maybe who might be suspect when it comes to like grades on paper, but he sees something in people. It's like the whole Michael Graham story. 
most people, when he signed Michael Graham, they said uh, it's too controversial, right? Here's a guy who may, he, I believe he did not have the high school credits. And here's this guy, John Thompson, right? Who, who says, look, I'm all about academics, but John Thompson saw something in him and it, and, and he created this, we'll call it a cabinet, but he created a workforce in the academic program surrounding his institution, right? That helped young kids out to identify them, to bring them in during summer school. So Michael Graham actually takes uh, upward bound classes in summer school. And that's who John Thompson was, right? He's a guy who's going to give these guys a chance. a guy, a chance. Maybe people don't care about these players and, and, oh yeah, they got to be super talented, right? And so his thing, character and talent, and check this out. By 1990, he had graduated 98 percent, 98 percent of his guys. And at that time, the black graduation rate at these big time schools was 20 percent. That's yeah. incredible. Like that's legacy. That's legacy right there. Right. All, yeah. Which is telling you all these other schools are just using these players. Right. Where John Thompson is bringing them into Georgetown and giving them a Georgetown education. Right. Um, and I think that's why he gets that name, St. Saint, Saint John. Um, to be clear, listeners, it doesn't mean that it's without controversy or, or racism. His third year in, uh, fans, I think they're like going 500 and, and the fans are pissed, right? And they, they uh, unravel a, a sign that essentially said the N-word, uh, Thompson, the N-word flop must go, right? They're trying to get him fired right away. Uh, for being eight and eight. And essentially what happened in this case is that he signed a star player for missing classes. Um, and, and, but this is, I think this is a key moment because race, the issue of race and also racism followed that team around overtly, right? Microaggressions or overtly like how, how some of those big East schools treated Pat Ewing, right? Patrick Ewing can't read or banana pills on the court mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Um, and then there's those conversations that we were talking about as him being this black coach with a, with a, with a team that pressed you for 40 minutes. Right. And, and, and when you guys got, when you guys, when you had guys like Patrick Ewing, just intimidating you at all times, and then you add Michael Graham to that mix, right. That's a recipe for, for the racist to come out the woodwork. Yeah, no question. I mean, I think when I, when I, you know, when I, I mean, part of what I, what I'm doing, what I just did with my, the book I just finished is, you know, I, I revisit what we call in sports history, the integration era, you know, uh, to see how black athletes, uh, you know, uh, fill up rosters, uh, uh, you know, in, in pre- formerly predominantly white institutions and to see the limits of that process, right. Which we're still seeing well to this very day, but what makes Thompson's trajectory unique is that he ascends to the, to the head coach figure, right. Which is really interesting because that's not the trajectory most of the time, you know, most of the time, you know, black players are allowed to be on rosters, you know, and there's always a a set number of white players. Um, And you get black assistants to help with recruitment over and over again. For example, the case I know well is, uh, you know, Guy Lewis, the longtime head coach of the Houston Cougars, University of Houston Cougars, had Terry Kirkpatrick help him recruit black Houstonian athletes. You know, he's a person who helped care for Hakeem Olajuwon when he like kind of dropped out of the sky and wound up in Houston in 1980. (laughs) Uh, But Kirkpatrick never gets a job and then he dies afterwards. I mean, like, so like there's black assistants, right, at at these PWIs, but not – Black head coaches, uh, you know, that wind up ascending to the level that the Thompson does, and you know, part of that is because he just he's fortunate to wind up coaching at a school that eventually joins the Big East, and that you know that changes his his trajectory even more. But I mean, I think that's what's so interesting about you know integration there is that somehow he winds up as the head coach because of the protests that you're highlighting here, Boo. Um, 
but it's it's unusual. It's an unusual trajectory, you know. And I think that's part of the reason why his, his he's such a, he's such a fascinating historical figure. And let me add, like I think this is an important thing. I think your note about uh, Georgetown moving into the Big East is important to understand that John Thompson gets a a what we would then think of as a marginal job, right? If you've ever seen Georgetown's on campus arena. It is a small cracker box arena, right? Um, it does not befit the, the institution that the way we imagine Georgetown. Uh, and his trajectory, that means his trajectory is very different than the other black coaches of his generation. So so in, in pre-prep, we were talking about that John Thompson, Nolan Richardson, uh, John Chaney, and Tubby Smith are really kind of these four figures in the in the 70s, 80s, and 90s that I would are- I would throw George Raveling in there also. George Raveling on the West Coast. So those four guys, um, they don't they they have to work their way up in a really unique way. Right. Whereas John Thompson gets a job in 72 and he just stays there. And so you look at Nolan Richardson, like he's at West Texas Junior College. He's at he's at Tulsa. Tulsa. uh, And then he gets the Arkansas job. Right. And then it's there. He makes his name. Um, John Cheney's at Cheney State and HBCU in Pennsylvania, where he wins like you know, uh, four national titles in six years or something like that before Temple hires him. Uh, Tubby Smith is at a number of institutions as an assistant coach at Kentucky uh, before he's able to ascend to the head job after Rick Pitino leaves for the NBA. And George and Ramblin, national and, championship and wins a national championship that first year. In his first year, and then ultimately gets fired for not recruiting well enough. Um, uh, and then George Ravlin was at Washington State right before he gets the USC job. Uh, and then he moves into the kind of, I think he moves for Adidas. I think he's really, that's where he really makes his. his he's Adidas his or Nike, right? Like, yeah, yeah. But you guys real quick on Raveling, he had to do the same thing, right? I think because he was at Maryland, right? As an assistant. Mm-hmm. And I'm, I believe he's a Villanova guy too, like an alum, right? He's part of those Catholic school guys who go to Catholic schools. But yeah, no, you're right. Like when we did listeners, we had that Leonard Hamilton app too. Yep. As I rudely cut off Derek at his point, but yes, yes, go ahead. Sorry, Derek. No, no, no. That's that. That's the point. But I think there's an excellent point about how assistance is a very difficult path for that assistant, that black assistant who is in charge of recruiting black talent at PWIs to ascend to the head seat, right? The the in, you know the head coaching position, and then to do it uh, in such a way that they can win, be in competition for titles, right? And I think that that speaks to. Uh, John Thompson is unique place, right? Because he's at one institution. He goes from high school to Georgetown, Georgetown to the end until he retires. And whereas other coaches have to apply their, they have to prove that they can coach at the collegiate level before some school can a- give them an opportunity. And I think that John Thompson, um, because of the riots, as Lou pointed out earlier in Washington, D.C., and because Georgetown is a marginal institution in basketball, it's this unique opportunity for someone like John Thompson to build a program from literally the ground up uh, and, and turn it into his own image. And such that we all three thought that that Georgetown was an HBCU because that was our only relationship. And what we know is all academics. Now, we're all academics now. We're like Georgetown is the furthest thing from an HBCU. <laughs> Indeed. Uh, um, and so I think that that the tensions that John Thompson is able to do. I want to, you know, we have a few, I want us to spend a little bit of time uh, talking a little bit about the eighties in which John Thompson, who, who takes on this saint role uh, and wins a national title in 84 
becomes highly involved in the Black Coaches Network and challenging the, the NCAA about Proposition 42 and 48. And, and so, Lou, real quick, can, for our listeners, tell us what Proposition 42 and 48 are, and then let's talk a little bit uh, about what John Thompson's role and what, and what that symbol did that, in that era. Right. As uh, Dion Bordeaux says in uh, Blue Chips, it's culturally biased, but essentially with Prop 48. So Prop 48 comes first. Right. And and what happens is is what everybody knows. Right. The black athletes ex- exploited. Right. There's guys like uh, I believe it's Dexter Manley. Right. Who, who graduates from Oklahoma State. Can't read. Can't write. Um, and then there's people like Chris Washburn who gets like a four something on his SAT when you get 400 names, you know, 400 for spelling your name right. And I think all this is coming up and the NCAA's decision is, well, I know what we'll do. We'll, we'll make it seem like we're going to educate these players and we'll come up with Prop 48, which essentially says you have to meet this minimum score on, it's like a 700 something, right? On your SAT or your ACT. And then also, I believe, have like a, a 2.0 or something GPA uh, coming out of high school. And what happened from the get-go, now, people would say this is culturally biased because a lot of black students wouldn't have had those SATs, right? And so the math, if you did the math on it, it was saying, you know, a certain amount would have been ineligible. And so it looked bad, right? Because as we know, the SAT is designed, you know, uh, for a very specific reason, right? And it is culturally biased. And this, people like John Thompson are, are leading the charge in this. And then they pro- uh, passed Prop 42 in 1988, which is even worse because it essentially says those people who are ineligible their freshman year cannot receive financial aid. And this is the real problem because, you know, it's one thing to say Prop 48, you just can't play that year, your freshman year, get your grades right. It's okay. We'll take care of you or that facade that we're going to take care of you. But it's another thing to tell a poor kid that we're not going to give you financial aid because that's going to keep that poor kid out of that school. And John Thompson sees this and says, wait a minute, this is not fair. This is really kind of going after me. Um, and mm-hmm. he he protests the game. He walks out of a game to 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 make a point about what's going on here, and they'll eventually change it. I think what's also interesting about that is that his major opposition in the press at that time was Arthur Ashe. And Arthur Ashe looked at Prop 48 and he looked at Prop 42 and said, no, these are a good thing because these athletes have to – you should have to have something to aspire to a minimum, right? In case you don't make it. But I think for someone like John Thompson, that never applied because he was always thinking about these guys making it, right? Um, but that's that's you know that's that's what's surrounding um, John Thompson in the 1980s, right? The part of the backdrop is this idea of education and really fighting for these black athletes to have an opportunity to go to schools like Georgetown and Prop 42 would have directly impacted them um, and kept them out. I believe they wound up passing Prop 16 to, to stop that a little bit. But yeah, that's that's part of John Thompson's legacy, right? That fight, uh, that protest uh, to make sure that his recruits and Black athletes across the nation have a real opportunity to go to school. Yeah, because I think, you know, Thompson, you know, and others have said this today, you know, he saw himself as an advocate for, for Black athletes. Um, you know, uh, you know, he helped pioneer the creation of the black college, uh, college coach association, him and Cheney are the leading voices, you know, advocating for their athletes. Of course, it's in their interest to do so, so they can ensure that they have the best talent on their rosters. And that's, you know, they're, they're, they're in this really interesting predicament in the eighties, right? 
big money is coming into college basketball at an unprecedented level. You know, shepherded in by conferences like uh, the Big East, which is totally a television creation. In 1982, CBS signs this uh, then unheard of, um, you know, $48 million contract to televise uh, the NCAA tournament, right? And Mm -hmm. it just goes from there, right? I mean, the the numbers just explode. And of course, uh, the numbers are being driven by this influx of black, continuing influx of black athletes into college basketball, right? And so, you know, on the one hand, you know, Thompson, Cheney, they understand this is what's going on. They understand that this is a possible route of upper mobility for their young men, but they're also seeing and benefiting from the commercialization of the sport, right? I mean, that's the thing that's so interesting about his yeah. predicament at that time, right? So that, you know, he, you know, Nike, you know, has a contract with Georgetown in 1985, right? And so, you know, they're one of the first schools to start, you know, doing these kind of school branded shoes following right after the Air Jordan uh, sneaker of 1985 as well, right? So, mm-hmm. so you know, he understood that the money was coming in. He was actually very upfront about the fact that he was making money. You know, he was unapologetic about that, but he also really tried to stick to the mission as he saw it, the educational mission, which is to make sure that his players got, you know, got education and graduated, even if they, you know, they struggle on these standardized test scores. Um, And so, you know, he's wrestling with that predicament all the way through, uh, you know, through the 1980s until he retires. Right. Could I, could I add one thing to that, that money thing, right? Because we got to be honestly like i think john thompson saw like you said he's like i'm gonna get mine too right and and at the early 90s he's the highest he's making the most money from nike i think he was only getting two hundred thousand. that was a lot back Mm -hmm. then right (laughs) now it's like something crazy Mm -hmm. and he also was the highest paid coach he had just turned down the nuggets and you know john thompson is a control guy and the nuggets were offering him like a gm manager gig but he had to like if he was going to make the trades, he had to ask ownership and he didn't want to do that. Uh, but one story about him getting his, his money. And, and and if it came out today, it'd been controversial. But when they signed to play Virginia, so it was after Ewing. So going into Ewing's sophomore year, they played Virginia. Um, and I believe it was on WTBS. Um, so it was the first time like a small network like that upstart uh, beat out the big dogs for, for the contract. But one of the things he said coming in, schools are going to get their money. I want money too. And everybody <laughs> understood that he wanted 50,000, right? If I'm bringing you this game, I'm bringing you Pat Ewing, Ralph Sampson, I'm getting money too. And they wind up cutting him a deal with like a, I believe it's Coca-Cola uh, or some soft drink company. So it must've been Coke to do uh basketball clinics. And they're going to pay, he's going to do like three basketball clinics and then they're going to pay him 50,000. So they couldn't just give him the money outright, but it's the same kind of thing that they would always do with tournaments. You're going to bring your team to this tournament. You know, we'll, we'll let you talk to the boosters. We'll pay you a couple thousand here, but he saw it, right? He saw how much money was being made and he made sure to, um, to get his cut. He did. Um, there's a, right, there's a, yeah. there's a, no, go, go, Lou. Sorry. I no, I was going to say, because I, no, go that way. Cause I, we also got to talk about the drug dealer too, but no, go, go. It's a great quote. It circulated today. It's from 1984, in which Thompson says, I am perceived as a success by standards created by white people. My team wins a lot of games. I make a lot of money when I'm 80 and look back. Is that going to make me think of myself as a success? I don't think so. But then he continued. But if I change some things, even slightly, if I stand up on this platform, I've been given and say, oh, I lost my screen, and say, no, this is wrong, then maybe I will feel good about myself. I may not change anything, and I know I'm going to upset some people, but I can live with that. I mean, this to me, this exemplifies right. Thompson's attitude, right? right. Uh, I'm winning games. I'm a success according to white standards in the college game, uh, but I'm going to stand up for what's 
you know, stand up against what's wrong, right? But I'm going to work within the system at the same time. You know, I think that's just that's such a great quote that really exemplifies, you know, his his attitude throughout his career, certainly at that time. No, no, for sure, for sure, for sure. And I think this is the same time in '84 we were reading. So I was re- Derek and I were reading up on it, where where you know people were talking about you know he's taking all these ghetto kids. He's like, no, I don't have any ghetto kids. I have good kids, right? Uh, my kids have good character, so don't put that on me, right? They were raised well, and I'm just here making sure they get an education. And I think one of the things he did was everybody tried to see the blackness of that. A lot of people tried to see the blackness of that team in, in a negative light. And he always made sure to to flip it on to the positive. Um, so, yeah. And then the drug dealer story. Derek, you got it? No, you got it. No, you got no, it. No, I, yeah, no. Because I just know. No, I, he's not, he's, I just know anecdotally, right? He's on Ted Koppel. And, and essentially he tells him on, on the nightly news that, look, uh, it was what rumors out that Zoe or the biggest drug dealer in D.C. was on, was around Zoe, Alonzo Mourning. And uh, John Thompson had to go to him and say, leave my players alone. Right. And players were left alone. Yeah. <laughs> and that just, but that just kind of shows you the respect he had um, in that area that, that he could do that. Um, and I know we're, we're running out of time, but I was thinking like, man, Thompson in the eighties in DC, right. Chocolate city. And then the, the backdrop to that is also Reagan and Reaganomics, man. I, mm. you just see how people could rally around that team. Right. Um, that Georgetown stood for it was that in your face style of play and blackness with the backdrop Reaganomics, right? And this cutback from civil rights and stuff like that. You can see how people across the country would rally around that team and, and really fall in love and want the starter gear and everything else. But the other and even, that, oh, oh, and go ahead, Frank. Quick, just refresh because drugs. Marion Barry, you know, I mean, from a Disney yeah. standpoint, right? It's in that era too, right? I mean, like this is the era. I mean, this narrative is so deep because it's still with us today, right? Where you know, all black athletes from the inner city, all of them are in danger of um, using drugs, becoming drug dealers, becoming the next Len Bias. You know, nineteen eighty six, right? Uh, it's in that context that he's positioning himself, understandably so, as somebody who's who will stand up for black communities. You know, even even as circumscribed as his position was as a as a, as a college uh, as a coach of a, of a college uh, program in the PWI. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's an excellent point, right? DC, when you talk about Chocolate City in DC, it's hard for we all have students and they're younger and they they have no conception of what DC in the 80s and 90s was like and and John Thompson was was a star and so him along with Mary and Barry, they they had the ability to go into the roughest neighborhoods in DC and ensure certain kind of protections from their guys as they wanted to go out and enjoy the nightlife as college students wanted to do. Uh, and I think that was an important piece. And I think it speaks to the kind of contradiction, the contradistinction to Lynn Bias, right, where Lefty was like kind of oblivious to the people that Lynn Bias was hanging out with. Um, and so long as he performed, he didn't care any about anything about some of that other stuff that happened in the background uh, and that led to his tragic death. Um, and I think that John Thompson, that 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 particular moment, right, the Lynn Bias moment, uh, you know, we talk about the 80s, but the Lynn Bias moment also makes an important pivot that allows John Thompson to assume this role as this father figure, as this, you know, literally larger than life black coach, right? He's six foot 10 
for these black athletes. And so he couldn't recruit all those kids, but he felt like he could speak on their behalf because he felt like one of these white coaches were exploiting them in different in ways that uh, that were to their detriment. And I think that was really the turning point. And that's how you get to to him to protesting in 1989 for Prop 42. Uh, and and it also sets a stage for him to as we sneak into the 90s uh, for him to really go out and be the only coach that could offer Allen Iverson a scholarship after he was arrested uh, in uh, the bowling the bowling alley brawl uh, in Virginia. And I just want to say, as I was at Maryland at the same time uh, as Allen Iverson was at Georgetown, and and I think that you know. John Thompson, Allen Iverson said this when he went to the Hall of Fame that John Thompson saved his life. And I think that there is a there is a unique role for a coach of that stature to to provide an opportunity for someone as immensely talented as Allen Iverson. Um, and at the same time, who's extremely smart, who is uh, but also a product of a particular kind of uh, area region right that that, that chesapeake region mm-hmm. which had produced tremendous amounts of athletes but also uh politically had kind of robbed black people of a lot of power in that area and i think that john thompson understood those circumstances and that's really what's to me if we want to look at john thompson's legacy like we talked about all these things the thing that's shocking is that here we are in 2020 and we don't have any coaches uh, any black coaches that that are attempting or that could near you know in any way shape or form fill this kind of role not his shoes his role right as this this the spokesperson on behalf of of the of black coaches on behalf of black players inside this circumscribed game that is college basketball there's no question i mean you know i think the biggest advocates for black athletes uh, in big time uh, collegiate sports are black athletes, <laughs> as we're seeing this summer. <laughs> you know, not coaches, uh, for sure. I mean, coaches are you know, silently, you know, kind of going along with some of the protesting we've seen here. But you know, that's what's kind of sad about you know John Thompson's passing is that 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 figure doesn't exist in the same way. I mean, there are obviously black coaches trying to do right by black communities and their players, and I mean, uh, that's to say that they're not is, is is wrong. But but with that level of a stature. You know, to see the ways in which white men have seized, you know, or reclaimed or, you know, reclaimed turf in the sport management coaching business is, is truly astonishing, right? Since 2004, the percentages of um, black coaches in college basketball programs has declined from what was 30% or something like that in 2004, 2005. Now it's down near 18%. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we see similar trends in the women's game. We see this, you know, happening at coaching at all levels, right? And so, it's, mm-hmm. so to see his passing really marks you know, reminds us of the ways in which white men have seized this profession yet again or reclaimed turf in certain ways using advanced analytic ideologies as a way to justify it, right? I mean, that's how I see it anyway. Um, and so to, to reflect on his passing is, is to, to, to really you know, look back on that era and see how distant at least it feels to me as a scholar, as a sports fan, uh, and how we have to figure out a way to reclaim turf uh, in terms of coaching and, and mentoring uh, at, the, at the collegiate level. I, I want to say no, what does oh, well said. Yeah, go ahead, Derek. Yeah, no, no, go ahead, Derek. Point, but I think I, I want to add just one point in the context of George Floyd, right? Like this stature, I think that's the next way that as we as we watch this summer of of 
of protest of Black Lives Matter that has infected and, 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 and infused cities across the country from, from, from Louisville, where Breonna Taylor was tragically murdered, to Minneapolis, but to all these small communities, uh, big and small across the nation, where we've seen continual protests in places like Portland, or we saw protests in Kentucky in, in the mountains in Appalachia uh, in the aftermath of George Floyd, that one of the voices that has been that one of the absent voices is someone of John Thompson's stature to give kind of clarity and vision uh, from their stature as, as uh, you know, kind of the Dean of black coaches. And that's really, uh, you know, we and Lou were talking on the phone this, this, this afternoon. And we were like, you know, who has assumed that role? And I guess it's doc rivers as, as Mm -hmm. at at the pro game uh, who stepped into this role. Um, But the college game, it's such a unique game because it's it, it's not just about X's and O's and it's it's about mentoring young men into adulthood, um, and and I think that there's something to be said that that the John Thompson's passing speaks to a larger absence uh, in in college sports that we can feel um, as well. You're right, and I would say too, just thinking about it, I don't know if there's ever been a black coach at the college level to have that much power right like who are the high profile who are what black coaches let's say in basketball have high profile jobs today we talk about shaka shaka can't come out and and john thompson it right shaka 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 would be gone real quick he'd have a nice buyout but he'd be gone and i I think that that speaks to how john thompson built his program and 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 earned that respect right Uh, now now he took power like really far with them and made sure they only hired his guys afterwards, but still <laughs> like, like to be able to speak freely, like a John Thompson or a John Chaney had for a while at temple. Um, like it's very, very rare that will, that you see, like, I don't, I don't see it like in, at the college level, maybe Herm Edwards, but people are looking for Herm to, to like unify, right? Like you go to Herm Edwards when you want to feel good about race in America. Right. And he'll, 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 he'll have this, a great speech. Um, it won't make a lot of sense, but sorry, Herm, if you listen, uh, I love you, Herm, <laughs> but he'll have a, like, he'll have a great speech, but it's not like a John Thompson. Like he's just in your face, right? Herm, Herm knows how to be like that spokesperson. Tony, Tony Dungy retired, knows how to be like the, a calming f- voice where maybe sometimes we need like a hard hitting voice. Right. Um, but very few have that luxury, though, to be John Thompson. We have to be clear about that, right? I mean, there's maybe somebody like you know, uh, C. Vivian Stringer in the women's game, you know, right, you know somebody right. like that. But you and know, Rutgers, but no, yeah. no, that you're right. There's very few uh, Leonard Hamilton, you know, but nobody with that level of stature. No, you know, and it's also because again, I mean, he was, I mean, he recruited exceptional athletes, right? He won. Uh, I mean, the talent is extraordinary, uh, and his usage of talent in certain ways, particularly on the defensive side of the ball, was extraordinary. Um, but again, he was able to kind of sell people on, you know, the value of education, even, you know, regardless of whatever the course of the curriculum <laughs> was at Georgetown, you know, that was part of his stick that my players graduate, you know, now in the era of one and done, that doesn't matter in the men's game, you know, like that whole, you know, paying lip service to the educational mission of, 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 uh, of college sports, it doesn't, it doesn't exist in the same way that it did in his era. So it allows for these, these other folks who are these white guys out there to kind of just, you know, sell people on the on the package of going to the pros, and that's all they have to do. They don't have to pay any lip service to, you know, some notion of, you know, uplifting your communities through education, you know, or yourselves. That's a good point. Yeah. Derek. Yeah. I think, 
Oh, I'm gonna say there we lose Derek. Like is this? <laughs> I'm here. I'm here. I'm, he's still, I'm here. Derek's still falling out from Kentucky losing to Georgetown. I think because rumor has it that Derek had a fade like like uh, Kenny Skywalker. <laughs> that's 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 the rumor. So he's he's missing his hair right now. I mean, I, 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 I ain't had a fade Did in you? a long time, so it's a hard. I can't quite rem- recall. I can't recall. Let's just put it that way. I ain't had hair in so long. <laughs> I, by the way, I just want to correct myself. Archbishop Alloy was Kenny Smith. You were right. Yeah. And Kenny another Smith. very famous point guard uh, after him, Mr. Kenny Anderson. Kenny extraordinary. Anderson. Kenny's, also right. came out Archbishop Malloy, among many others. So I, 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 yeah. I, I do recall their important uh, influence in New York City basketball. <laughs> and I believe that Kenny Anderson has a uh, documentary that's supposed to be pretty good, but it's not free right now, streaming on Prime. But you know uh, what New York player has a Prime uh, documentary, a legend from the 1980s and uh, right 80s New York basketball. Tell me, Sweet Pea. Lloyd Daniels has oh, a has wow. a has a Lloyd documentary Daniels. on Prime, and it wow. is as crazy as you think it would be because oh, <laughs> Lloyd Daniels was 16 years old in the eighth grade and couldn't read or write, and he got into UNLV, and that's a whole another subject too. By the way, like talking about Jerry Tarkanian, who was a I don't want to say he wasn't John Thompson like, but he brought the he brought the same players in, but I don't think he 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 cared about them, but not in the education standpoint. But that's no. a whole and other where, conversation. And where is the thirty for thirty on Georgetown? I mean, I've been saying this for years. Like you know, oh, we got thirty for thirty on UNLV. We got a thirty for thirty on or documentary. It didn't happen thirty for thirty on you know the Fab Five on Duke. You know Duke. They Christian did it with the Big yeah. East, but I think you could right. do a thirty for thirty. No, you need yeah. its own documentary, right. and I would say book on Georgetown's impact, George Thompson and Georgetown. It's a book and a thesis waiting to happen. You know, it really is because it's just so much as we've you know just a little we've covered in this conversation to say about the impact of that 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 program and that and John Thompson and all the people that he you know he came in contact with during those years. Right, right, for sure. Absolutely. And I'm not going to write it because I don't have the time. So I think, I think Derek should do it. That's Derek, true. Derek, I, do a I DMV book. I, yeah. I, I wish I could do it, but uh, I can't. I don't know. I don't know if I have time. We'll see. <laughs> we'll see. I've got, uh, you know, like everybody else, I've got like four projects that are like all half-baked. Um, right. But I do love I do love this idea of this Georgetown, Maryland, uh, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s kind of framework because I think it's an interesting way to tell the DC story. I think there's not been enough great books about Washington, DC. Um, uh, my good friend, uh, Derek has the best book on chocolate city, the history of black folks in, in, in Washington, DC. But I do think that there needs to be a, uh, you know, a really interesting way of telling that story through the lens of sports. And John Thompson is really an, an appropriate backdrop. I mean, that's where you get the conversation about Dexter Manley. All this stuff is happening you know, right around uh, Washington, D.C., you know, right around Georgetown's oh. campus. And can we just before um, we get off uh, before we get off the, the pod, because we're almost at an hour. I want to say one thing. We're at an hour. Yeah. Yeah. I want to say one thing that George John Thompson is already in the Hall of Fame. But if we had like a black history Hall of Fame to put him in, can we put him in for putting the Kenty cloth trim on the Georgetown oh, yeah. basketball yeah. uniforms? Because, like, that's why we thought it was an HBCU. Like, right, the fact right. that you could pull the Kenty cloth trim on the Georgetown uniform. It was sweet design. Yeah. It was sweet. And you're like, no one else is pulling that off, right? Like, it's like, no. like, it's like Georgetown, Howard, Hampton, right? That's the way we were thinking. Because those are the only three places you could imagine pulling that off. Wow. And, yeah. and, and, you it's know, really true. 
And that just speaks to the kind of power that he was like, we're going to have this kinty cloth where literally they, you know, the black population in the 80s at Georgetown or in the 90s, even in the early 90s when Allen Iverson was there, was like 3% or something crazy like that. Like, <laughs> and so it's just, a, it's a fantastic, you know, speaks to the fantastic. And so we want, you know, I'm, I'm glad we had the honor to, 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 to talk about John Thomas's life and legacy uh, on this podcast today. Uh, and I want to thank Frank for for providing us with this amazing context for the 1980s as a New Yorker, as a Big East alum, uh, and as a as a as a fantastic sports scholar with the amazing book coming out on Texas uh, uh, and and sporting revolutions and how Texas changed the culture of American athletics. We can't wait to read it. Uh, we're going to ask that the University of Texas Press send us an advanced copy. That's all we're going to say on the on the pod. You'll yeah. get it regardless. Yeah. We're talking about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, but we love it, and we and we think it's going to be a fantastic book. So, thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with us this evening. Thank you for having me. And as I've said off the, before we started, I, I really applaud all the work you folks have done, your individual scholarship and your public engagement, and with this podcast, it's it's, it's made a real uh, important intervention. So, thank you for your work. Wow, thank you, thank you. And on that note, peace. Peace.